should all moral leaders needed to say no to what Hamas did to children and women and no, no, no to what Israel, the Israeli government and Netanyahu is now continuing to do uh, in the original argument I wrote about Hamas, I also challenged the apartheid state that the Netanyahu regime had had in Israel. We said we must speak as one voice, Christians, Muslims, and Jews to say the indiscriminate killing of women and children in this war is immoral. And let me give you a scripture straight from the text that, that Muslims, Jews, and Christians all agree on. It's Isaiah 10. It ought to be a framework for how we move forward. Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children pray, P-R-E-Y. That is a moral text from the ancient uh, Hebrew scriptures that Muslims and Christians all agree on. And it is a prophetic challenge to governments. And that must be our prophetic challenge to what Netanyahu and them are doing today. Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, speaking to us from Durham, North Carolina. And Michael Zweig, economist and author of Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Bishop Barber wrote the introduction. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes. Happy birthday, Messiah. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. to KBOO Portland. Do you love music but don't have the energy to find new stuff? Can't decide whether you want to hear indie rock or hip-hop, electronic music or singer-songwriters? Then tune into Another Late Night every first Saturday at 3 a.m. only on KBOO Community Radio or stream online at kboo.fm slash another late night where we've got it all. Now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBOO Evening News. Coming up on the KBOO Evening News, TriMet video contradicts Commissioner Ray Gonzalez's description of transit conflict. Advocacy org No More Freeways sues Metro Regional Government over transportation plans. And groups in Oregon push for a people's budget in the legislature. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Monday, February 12th, 2024. I'm Reed Johnson. And I'm Michelle Coppola. Last week, Portland Commissioner and mayoral candidate Renee Gonzalez released a video saying he was accosted by a woman on a MAX train at the end of January. He described it as, quote, 
deliberate, unwanted physical contact, followed by criticisms of the city's policies regarding homelessness, end quote. Gonzalez said he would stop riding TriMet because he felt unsafe. Today, Oregon Live obtained video from that Max train ride that tells a very different story. In it, Gonzalez sits in an aisle seat and a woman walks past him towards the front of a nearly empty train car. From the video, it's not entirely clear that Gonzalez was touched at all. At most, he was brushed on the shoulder as she walked past. Some of the interaction is out of view of the main camera. However, another camera angle captures the woman sitting in front of Gonzalez and engaging in conversation with him. He had claimed both to police and news outlets that the woman bumped into him twice. His allegations come three weeks after someone allegedly set fire to a relative's car outside his home. Portland environmental group No More Freeways sues the metro regional government over their transportation plan, saying it doesn't match up with the aggressive climate goals mandated by the state. The legal challenge was filed with the Department of Land Conservation and Development. It says that Metro's plan wrongly claims that the region is on track to reduce its emission targets. They say Metro bases their assumptions on two conflicting data sets and the models that come out of them. Uh, And they allege that the model doesn't address the most important step to reducing emissions, decreasing driving. Metro's plan includes increasing infrastructure for transit, walking and biking, but also includes major freeway projects. That includes the replacement of the Interstate 5 bridge over the Columbia and the Rose Quarter and I-205 expansions. It's an important list of plans because it determines which projects are eligible for federal funding. Oregon's largest source of greenhouse gas emissions is transportation, making up over a third of emissions in the state. The legal challenge demands that Metro prioritize spending on projects that comply with greenhouse gas reduction targets. Oregon lawmakers are in Salem for a short session. A diverse coalition of groups has come together to propose its budget priorities for that session. KBOO's Matea Carlin has the details. A coalition of groups has laid out its budget priorities for the Oregon legislative session in an effort to advance racial, gender, and economic justice. The Fair Shot for All Coalition includes unions, racial equity and education groups, and more. They've proposed the 2024 People's Budget for this year's short session. Coalition Director Heather Stewart says one of their priorities is the state's housing crisis. She says more than 80% of evictions happen because someone is behind on rent. Rent assistance is the single most effective tool at preventing evictions, making sure that landlords get paid and tenants stay housed. So our ask for this session is $45 million to make sure that that program keeps up with demand. The coalition is proposing that the state invest $63 million in housing and rental assistance. The groups behind Fair Shot for All also want the state to make big investments in child care. Stewart says the subsidy program known as Employment Related Daycare, or ERDC, has been beneficial for families but also has room to grow. She says more than 1,300 families are on the wait list. The ERDC program is a lifeline for families. It keeps parents working and ensures kids get the care and early education they deserve. And it impacts all of us, but they will disproportionately be felt by BIPOC communities and other folks who are not able to pay for those child care pieces. Stewart says Oregon should also invest more in school-based health centers, which serve a critical need across the state. 
particularly for things like mental health for students, which we know Oregon has significant issues with, and for healthcare in a lot of communities where it's hard to find those healthcare providers that are easily accessible. For KBU News and the Oregon News Service, I'm Matea Carlin. Keeping with local budgeting news, the city is considering staffing just one employee for every city council member in the new government. This is according to a draft budget plan, which reveals the city's budget shortfalls could stifle charter reform. Currently, city councilors are staffed with six to seven employees each. City council is set to expand to 12 seats in January of 2025. The duties of council members will change as well. Presently, city councilors serve as bureau heads. In the future, bureaus will be overseen by a new city administrator position. City councilors will fulfill more traditional legislator roles along geographic district lines. In advance of the charter reforms in action, Portland City Council passed an ordinance last November. In it, they laid out a tentative staffing plan for the 12-person council, which provided each member with two employees. By the end of the month, however, that number had been reduced to one in a city budget office spending plan. The city now enters into budget negotiations for the upcoming fiscal year, facing $2 million in budget shortfalls. Alongside the reduction of council staff, Mayor Wheeler will require bureaus to cut their annual budgets by 5%. The Government Transition Advisory Committee advises the council on the government transition. In a letter addressing the draft budget, they referred to the proposed staffing as, quote, inadequate. There is a new path forward for repairs to the Northeast Portland Grant High School Bowl after being closed since August for failing safety tests. Portland Public Schools and the Parks Department have reached an agreement on improvements and public access to Grant High School's track and sports fields. The Grant Bowl has been shut down this year due to a series of failed safety tests. Sports have been taking place at other fields around the Portland area as a result. The agreement has yet to be fully approved, but if it is, PPS will handle permitting of the fields and will lease the Grant Bowl from Portland Parks and Recreation. The school district will be responsible for renovations and maintenance to address safety concerns. This started with a turf replacement last fall. The Grant Bowl field was supposed to have an 8 to 10 year lifespan and it's reaching the end of that now. It failed two tests when safety evaluators from an outside firm stepped in. In the new agreement, it's if it's carried forward, renovations can start to make the field usable again. The PPS board will vote on the agreement February 20th. Moving to national news, research says a healthy majority retain trust in their local election officials. The FCC says robocalls using AI-generated voices are illegal, and Long Island votes in a special election to replace former representative George Santos. With more on the story, it's Catherine Carley with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. What we learned in 2020 is that most Americans really don't understand our national election system. This has really been the space that nefarious actors have been effective in casting doubt in the validity of results. Kim Wyman of the Bipartisan Policy Center says local election officials are in a unique position to help restore confidence in voting. Research shows people trust them, but with a third of those local offices staffed by one or fewer full-time employee and many of those quitting after harsh partisan attacks, communication is likely to be a challenge. The FCC says robocalls using AI-generated voices are illegal. 
A faked voice mimicking President Joe Biden robocalled New Hampshire folks, encouraging them not to vote in the primary. State Attorney General John Formella says two Texas companies are facing criminal charges. Law enforcement across the country is unified on a bipartisan basis and ready to work together to combat any attempt to undermine our elections. Breaking the new FCC rule could mean fines up to $23,000 per robocall and lawsuits from people who got them. The White House aims to ease a split among Democrats over military support for Israel's war in Gaza. An executive order authorizes cutting off military aid if countries violate civilian protections. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says there's no blank check, even for our closest allies. This is a sea change in terms of how we approach U.S. military aid and its impact on civilians. House Republicans will try again this week to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after their initial efforts failed. Republicans accuse Mayorkas of failing to enforce federal immigration laws. He's dismissive and says they're dodging their responsibility. We don't bear responsibility for a broken system and we're doing a tremendous amount within that broken system. But fundamentally, Congress is the only one who can fix it. Under directions from former President Donald Trump, Republicans in Congress killed a bipartisan border compromise they had spent months demanding. For his part, Trump has until the end of today to request the Supreme Court pause his federal felony election interference case. A panel of three circuit court judges last week denied Trump's argument that he is immune from criminal prosecution. Tomorrow is the New York special election to replace former Representative George Santos. While many are relieved he's quit Congress, his scandals are still on voters' minds. Voter Kimberly Kaiserman points to mixed messages from Republican candidate Mozzie Pillip. You know, we look at this and we think that this is kind of eerily similar situation to George Santos, who we also didn't know. Pillip is a registered Democrat running as a Republican and has been plagued by inconsistencies in her campaign finance reports. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. If you're the parent of a school-aged child and they're behind on vaccinations, you have until February 21st to get up to date on those shots or else your child risks being sent home from school. It applies to kids in private and public schools, plus preschool, Head Start, and certified child care facilities. Parents likely got a reminder in the mail last week, and there are about 5,600 families in Multnomah County who got warning letters. COVID vaccines aren't required to attend school, but students need to have measles, polio, and whooping cough vaccines, among others. There are catch-up clinics offered this week across Portland, and they're free for students and families regardless of insurance. Families are encouraged to call 503-988-8939 to make an appointment for those clinics, but they are not required. By the way, that number again is 503-988-8939. Bob Moore, the founder of Bob's Red Mill, has died at the age of 94. In a statement released Saturday, the company said Moore passed away peacefully at home. Moore was born on February 15, 1929, in Portland. He founded Bob's Red Mill in 1978 as a natural food brand promoting whole grains. The business initially sold only within the Portland metro area, but gradually expanded. It now sells over 200 products across 70 countries. While a successful businessman, Moore was also an outspoken critic of corporate greed. In 2010, he celebrated his 81st birthday by creating an employee stock ownership plan. Presently, Bob's Red Mill is 100% employee-owned, with ownership shared by over 700 employees. 
Moore moved to a board position, and his face still graces the packaging of Bob's Red Mill products. Trey Winthrop is the CEO of Bob's Red Mill, and eulogizing the deceased Moore, Winthrop said, quote, All of us feel responsible and motivated to preserve his old-world approach to unprocessed foods, its commitment to pure, high-quality ingredients, and his generosity to employee owners and educational organizations focused on nutritional health. listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for an in-depth interview with Shannon Jones Isidore from the Oregon Change Clinic, an addiction treatment and temporary housing provider supported by funds from Measure 110. At 6 p.m., it's Labor Radio, then at 6.30, Prison Pipeline, and at 7, Hard Knock Radio. Your weather forecast, mostly clear with a low of 40 tonight, tomorrow, sunshine, and a high of 52. Today in history, in 1994, four thieves break into the National Gallery of Norway and steal Edvard Munch's iconic painting, The Scream. The thieves left behind a note card that read, Thanks for the poor security. They were later caught in a sting operation. The quote of the day is from English naturalist Charles Darwin, born this day in 1809. He said, quote, Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. It is those who know little, not those who know much, who so positively assert that this or that problem will never be solved by science. This week, the National Congress of American Indians hosts its 2024 Executive Council meeting in Washington, D.C. The first State of Indian Nations address from President Mark Macaro is hotly anticipated. With that story and more, it's Jill Freitas with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas sitting in for Antonia Gonzalez. The National Congress of American Indians is hosting tribal leaders from across the country this week in Washington, D.C. for the NCAI 2024 Executive Council Winter Session. Tribal leaders will discuss crucial issues facing American Indian and Alaska Native communities. They'll also take part in task force meetings, listening sessions, and hear from Biden administration officials, members of Congress, and federal partners. There's also a Native Youth Leadership Summit. One top highlight is the 2024 State of Indian Nation speech. NCAI's new president, Mark Macaro, who was elected in November, is delivering the address, which sets forth tribal priorities for the year ahead. Among priorities are land and to trust issues, voting rights, environmental sustainability, and more. The event kicks off Monday and will wrap up Thursday. The second annual Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Summit and Day of Action is taking place this week in Sacramento, California. The events are sponsored by the Yurok Tribe and the Wilton Rancheria. Chairman of the Yurok Tribe, Joseph L. James, says putting on these events gives a voice to the state's missing and murdered Indigenous people and their families, which he says for too long have suffered in silence as countless loved ones have been lost to the MMIP crisis. Tribal leaders from across California, along with state and federal legislators and leaders, including Assemblymember James Ramos, 
California Attorney General Rob Bonta, and U.S. Senator Alex Padilla, as well as law enforcement and families of missing and murdered people, are expected to advocate during the two days and seek solutions to target the crisis's root causes. Assemblymember Ramos says although there are increased awareness and resources to combat the MMIP epidemic, they're seeing California trend the wrong way with numbers of unsolved cases going up instead of down. Officials say California has the fifth highest amount of MMIP cases in the U.S., with the majority involving young women and girls. The events are taking place as the U.S. Congress reviews legislation on MMIP. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren and Navajo Nation Council Speaker Crystal Lynn Curley met with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson last week, urging for federal protection of the moon. The tribe has long advocated for protecting celestial bodies. Navajo leaders reached out to NASA, the White House, and other federal agencies in December, expressing opposition of a private company's rocket launch with NASA to the moon carrying human remains. The Navajo Nation had an initial meeting with officials in January, just days prior to the rocket launch. In a press conference last month, Nigrin talked about the sacredness of the moon and says sending human remains there is desecration. The Navajo Nation holds the moon in such high regard in that when it comes to our, our way of life and our culture, that we shouldn't be transporting uh, human remains, ashes to the moon, and also uh, we're born here and we should be left here as well when we're uh, when we move on as well. Nigrin went on to say he's expressed to the government how the moon plays a vital role to not only the Navajo Nation but other tribes as well. Our land, our culture, our way of life within the four sacred mountains, uh, the way we grow things, we use it as as a calendar. And our moon is just so integral in everything that we do that there should be some respect and respect some sacredness to the moon. Nigrin says even though they're opposed to this journey to the moon, the tribe is not opposed to science or space exploration, but wants continued tribal consultation. The Navajo Nation says last week's hour-long meeting at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. was a step toward acknowledging and respecting Native perspectives within U.S. space policy. I'm Jill Freitas. Oregon's voter-approved measure that decriminalized small amounts of drugs could see changes this legislative session. Supporters of the measure say rescinding it will criminalize people who are in need of help. KBOO's Ed Travaglia has more. As the Oregon legislative session opens, lawmakers can make changes to a voter-passed measure that decriminalized small amounts of drugs and open up more access to treatment. Backers of this measure say it's a move in the wrong direction. Oregon voters passed Measure 110 in 2020. Since then, lawmakers have become worried about the increasing number of drug overdoses. However, Sammy Teo with Oregon Food Bank says recriminalizing drug possession won't fix this problem, especially with people lining up for detox services. We need treatment beds, not jail beds. We need housing, mobile crisis counselors, better coordination between providers and law enforcement, and not to regress to tactics that increase the likelihood of overdose deaths which is what the legislature is proposing. Lawmakers have pointed to overdoses as a reason to recriminalize certain drugs, but a study from 2023 concluded fatal drug overdoses did not increase in the year after Measure 110 was introduced. Tio says addiction should be treated like a public health issue rather than a criminal one. Jay Amechi with Unite Oregon says there will be consequences if drug possession is criminalized again. Members of Black and Latino communities, for instance, are already arrested at disproportionate rates, so the burden of criminalization will fall upon these communities. Amechi also notes that the state is facing a public defender shortage. 
if this is an issue now, what are we going to do with the thousands of possession charges that would come if Measure 110 is reversed? It would just create an even greater crisis. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Tio says this issue is tied to hunger as well. She notes that people with criminal records have a harder time finding employment, educational opportunities, and housing. She says to address hunger, the state needs to create conditions that allow for stability and community connections. That means investing in proven strategies that reduce and prevent addiction and improve public safety, such as trauma-informed treatment, stable housing, and non-police responses to people experiencing crisis. For KBOO News and the Oregon News Service, I'm Ed Travaglia. A new report out of Colorado details the success of certain initiatives to improve health outcomes for people experiencing homelessness. The key? Housing. Eric Gladys has more. Healthcare providers in Colorado have been drawn into America's homelessness crisis and are adding institutional weight into a push for solutions, according to a new report by independent health journalist Michelle Cohen Merrill. Merrill points to one aha moment experienced by physician Sarah Stella, who saw many people experiencing homelessness seeking emergency care at Denver Health. She had patients coming in with severe frostbite and other types of injuries. They would get patched up, they would be discharged, and ended up back on the streets. And then within a brief period of time, she would see them back in the ER. One patient living outdoors had severe frostbite, which required several toes to be amputated. He was discharged to a shelter, but because it was relatively warm, he chose to sleep outside. He awoke, covered in snow, and went back to the ER with frostbite on his remaining toes. Stella then went to work, connecting area health providers to nonprofits and foundations to find ways to break this cycle. In October of 2022, the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless opened the Stout Street Recuperative Care Center, which provides a recovery space for people who are well enough to be released from the hospital but still need time to heal. Merrill says on average, clients stay two weeks, although some need prolonged care, such as chemotherapy, that may last as long as two or three months. Patients can be discharged safely. It's really a lifesaver. Many of these individuals would be very medically fragile if they were just living on the streets. Last December, Denver Health opened a converted floor of an administrative building to provide transitional housing for recovering patients. Clients are connected to case managers who help them find permanent housing and other services. Merrill says these sorts of interventions show that healthcare institutions can play a critical role in communities. Poor health is both a cause and an effect of homelessness. Health care and specifically health systems are an important part of the solution. This is Eric Galatis for the Colorado News Connection. When communities evacuate, residents without cars can be left behind. It's a problem that could get worse as extreme weather becomes more common. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. When a hurricane, wildfire, or other disaster is about to strike, local officials sometimes tell residents to evacuate to safety. But for people who do not have cars, evacuating can be difficult, if not impossible. And so oftentimes those who rely on public transit really face much longer wait times or are literally left behind. Yesenia Perez is with the Greenlining Institute, which advocates for economic and environmental justice for people of color. In a recent report, her group noted that during Hurricane Katrina, hundreds of thousands of people had no way to evacuate by car. 
and many struggled to find trains or buses to take them to safety. And in 2017, when a wildfire hit Santa Rosa, California, residents of some senior homes had to be rescued from the flames by family and emergency responders. These risks affect some communities more than others. The burden falls hardest on low-income communities and communities of color who already have existing mobility challenges and access. As climate change intensifies, extreme weather will become more common. So Perez says communities and governments need to plan how to get all residents to safety when disaster is about to strike. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. A group in Jackson, Mississippi, is focused on reducing and preventing crime. Operation Good is made up of formerly incarcerated people. Through their street outreach efforts over a three-year period, Operation Good says it has helped decrease violent crime rates in one Jackson neighborhood from 87% to 14%. Danielle Smith has more on the story. A group of formerly incarcerated people is making headway in Jackson, Mississippi to turn young lives around and prevent violent crime. On average, the violent crime rate in Jackson is just over six per 1,000 residents. The group Operation Good says it has helped to significantly lower crime rates in the areas it serves from 87% down to 14% in one neighborhood. Operation Good's Executive Director Frederick Womack says the goals are also to stop recidivism, clean up the environment, and find alternatives to violence and robbery. We're building that unity in the community. It kind of created a cohesiveness amongst the people within the community to make them to take more value in where they live at and make them more attentive to the things that are going on around them. A goal of the Mississippi Department of Public Safety is to reduce the overall violent crime rate in the state by 5% using federal grant funds. Womack points out their door-to-door street teams patrol neighborhoods day and night and have been able to resolve many issues before they can escalate. Womack emphasizes their community engagement efforts also include providing food to families in need and educational and mentoring programs for youth ages 13 to 26. He says so far they have mentored 224 young people, which has helped to minimize conflict. In the mentoring process, we talked to them about life. We gave a lot of these high-risk participants an outlet before they could do something. And then they know that they can't just be out there the way that they were because we're present. Womack adds they have become more involved in schools to help counteract a significant increase in bullying and peer pressure issues. They're collaborating with a group in North Jackson to develop a new anti-bullying initiative to launch in area schools. I'm Danielle Smith, Mississippi News Connection. Find our trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Monday, February 12th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories, tips, and ideas at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Matea Carlin, Ed Travaglia, Reed Johnson, and Ezra. The producer and engineer is Otto. Special thanks to Danielle Smith, Catherine Carley, Jill Freitas, Eric Galatis, and 
and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. The director of Evening News is the effervescent Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Michelle Coppola. And I'm Reed Johnson. All of our KBOO programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Stay tuned now for KBOO News In-Depth. Cable News In-Depth, where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. You are listening to Cable News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. As Oregon legislators debate the effects of Measure 110 and whether to recriminalize drugs, we're taking a look at the other half of the landmark measure, the influx in funding for substance use disorder treatment and recovery.